I do believe that when you really optimize energy and optimize the human connection, your life becomes really magical. Like the world becomes really mystical and incredibly exciting because I think that the same energy that we hear about in what I'm talking about in the Western medical model of mitochondrial health is the same energy that's used to manifest. It's the same energy that's used to create life. It's the same energy that's used to create businesses. And it's the same energy that's used to heal. And so if you learn to create more energetic flow and to harness that flow in your body, then your whole life can change. Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. Hi, I'm Dr. Dan Stickler. Before we get into today's episode, I want to talk to you about a protocol that I'm passionate about that I use in my practice. You know, everyone wants to slow down aging, but few are really doing it the right way. There's something I do recommend for my clients doing just two days a month. It's a bodily cleanse that helps get rid of old defective cells. These are sometimes called senescent cells or referred to as zombie cells. And they are shown to be related to so many symptoms of poor aging. This bodily cleanse is a supplement which contains a group of ingredients called senolytics. Senolytic ingredients help our body to flush senescent cells, helping with easier repair and rejuvenation from muscles to joints to how we feel every day. Qualia Senolytic is the bodily cleanse supplement taken just two days a month for healthy aging that you have to try. Now, research on aging and longevity, including a beta study on qualia senolytic, shows that senolytic supplementation can play a huge role in enhancing how we age. Now, to learn more about senolytic research and to try qualia senolytic risk-free for 100 days, go to neurohacker.com, use the code PODCAST, that's P-O-D-C-A-S-T, for a free gift with purchase. That's qualia senolytic for better aging at neurohacker.com. Hi, this is Dr. Greg Kelly. Today I'll be your host of Collective Insights. And with us, we have Dr. Molly Malouf, lecturer at Stanford University, founder and CEO of Adamo Bioscience, and author of The Spark Factor, The Secret to Supercharging Energy, Becoming Resilient, and Feeling Better Than Ever. Molly, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're welcome. I want to start off just with a quote. It was from your introduction, but I think it sets the table great for this episode, since we're going to be talking about your book, The Spark, and things we can do to reignite it. So the quote is, there's a spark of life inside each of your cells that powers your body with electricity. Some call it Tai Chi or Prana or life force. All life arises from this spark. But for many of us, and especially women, the demands of life have begun to dim this spark. So that's what I wanted to use to just lead in. Could you start by explaining what exactly the spark is and what led sure. you to write the book? I mean, for so long, I had this very materialistic view of the body. And over the years, I've really started to learn about the body through a lens of energy. And that really was a major paradigm shift for me internally to understand that it's not just about our genetics and the genetic plans of the body. It's really about, do we have enough energy to maintain the integrity of the structure? And that energy, like that literal you know, vital force that's running through us is our, it's really comes from our metabolism. You know, It comes from these mitochondrial organelles that are essentially batteries and capacitors. And we actually inherit our mitochondria from our moms. And 
you know, the mitochondria and the sperm, they get destroyed during birth. But there's also this zinc spark of life that happens when a sperm meets an egg. It's like literally an electrochemical reaction. So electrochemistry is really what powers our body. And when I started understanding that, it made me finally understand the Eastern model combined with the Western model of understanding sort of material biology. I was able to really combine these two different worldviews into something that made sense to me. Finally, I finally felt like I had some understanding of why we can be well and why we get sick. And so when you have enough energy to maintain your body, you can repair damaged DNA. You can fight off infection. You can, you know, like heal a damaged liver. But if you don't have enough energy, your body starts to break down. And typically people see this midlife. And, you know, the greatest factor that we um, really don't under, we, the, the, one of the biggest factors in our energetic flow is how well we are actually connected in the world. So this is a big part of the book as well, is like, it's not just about energy production. It's about the flow of energy and the connections in our life that dictate how we feel on a day-to-day basis. So I got really obsessed with human connection just as much as energy and metabolism because I felt like I'd found these two pillars of health that if you get them right, you get to live a long and healthy life. And that's really what the book's about, is about energy and connection. Well, great. We're going to get a lot more into connection as the show evolves. But before we jump into that, one of the things I always enjoy doing or especially enjoy reading is, you know, someone's personal journey, you know, like what got them to where they are. And as many times as we've had you on the show, I don't think we've ever highlighted that. And one of the things I really enjoyed was you talking about, you know, your temperament, some of your struggles, especially in early medical school, and then how yeah. you, you know, figured out a new way to be healthy and what that did for your grade. So could you maybe share a little bit with our audience that hasn't read that part of your book? Well, so just to give some context, um, I was not like, I'm really healthy right now, but I was not always really healthy as a person. So I struggled with health as a child and I went through periods of intense work, stress and burnout. I didn't know how to regulate my emotions. I had trouble with focus. I became very sedentary in my 20s ended up developing ADHD, which I think was directly resulting from lack of enough energy in my body and just not a healthy, I was living a healthy lifestyle. I was pretty much doing everything wrong. I wasn't sleeping enough. I was studying too much. I wasn't spending enough time with family and friends. I wasn't eating properly. I was skipping meals, which is sometimes okay, except for if you're eating gluten and you're gluten intolerant or celiac in my case. And I wasn't exercising. So I was literally doing everything wrong when it comes to health because I thought that that's what it took to succeed in medical school. And it wasn't until um, I went to a psychologist and was like, I don't know if I can continue. I'm just really miserable. And maybe I've got anxiety or depression. And he's like, look, you're just a stressed out medical student who's not taking care of herself. And I was like, oh, so I am responsible. (laughs) Okay. That was one of the first periods in in my life where I had to realize that I was ultimately responsible for my health or lack thereof. And I got really obsessed with, you know, lifestyle medicine. It was the same year that um, the American College of Lifestyle Medicine was founded. It was really the very beginnings of the lifestyle medicine movement. So I designed a course and I hired all these, I didn't hire, but I requested all these physicians that were experts in different areas like sleep and exercise and nutrition and, and relationships and integrated medicine. I had them come teach in my medical school, a course I designed and deployed through the family medical um, office, the family family medicine office. And that was my first taste of, um, my first sort of taste of being, mm-hmm 
in a educator role and a coordinator role. And I ended up winning a bunch of humanitarian awards because apparently medical students don't design medical classes, <laughs> medical school classes. And so I was really a huge fan of Andrew Weil. He was my, you know, sort of idol at the time. I was like, that's the kind of doctor I want to be like. And I got to my residency and found myself really struggling again. And again, not finding time for wellness. And, you know, the program I was in gave a lot of lip service to wellness, but they didn't really provide the hours to enable us to have wellness in our lives. So I was getting burned out. My mom had been diagnosed with cancer right before I started my residency. And I just went in with a really low you know, energy level. And it was deeply taxing emotionally. And I didn't fully understand until, frankly, I started studying a lot of esoteric things like human design and astrology and uh, a lot of stuff that came later in life when I, a lot of things that came from just like hanging out with hippies that I realized like how sensitive of a person that I am. And so I was able to really pick up on so many emotions in the hospital. And I just found that like, it was really not the environment for me to thrive. So um, I ended up leaving my residency, getting my medical license, starting my own medical practice, starting working with startups, start becoming a doctor. Basically, I doubled my income and I have my work hours in like a course of a month and ended up getting these incredible mentors who became my sort of teachers. And they were doctors that were doing medicine differently. They were working in Silicon Valley with billionaires and the elite. And they were doing a lot of things, you know, like health optimization or mind-body medicine or primary care, but concierge. And I was able to see all these different models of care that were not taught to me in medical school or residency. And I was just able to be in the right place at the right time and started a career um, both straddling technology and concierge medicine. And radi like radically, I was asked to teach at Stanford, which was a school I didn't get into for medical school or residency. And I ended up teaching in the medical school a course on health span for three years before I moved to Austin. So it has been an incredible journey of just like, I, I really do believe that the emphasis and the investment in my health in the last 10 years of my life has led to me realizing un, unknown capacities that I never knew I, would, I even had. And I do believe that with, when you really optimize energy and optimize the human connection, your life becomes really magical. Like the world becomes really mystical and incredibly exciting because I think that the same energy that we hear about in what I'm talking about in the Western medical model of mitochondrial health is the same energy that's used to um, to manifest. It's the same energy that's used to create life. It's the same energy that's used to create businesses. And it's the same energy that's used to heal. And so if you learn to create more energetic flow and to harness that flow in your body, then your whole life can change. And that's really what my career has been all about. When it's, you know, just for the listener, is I just want to, you know, in a sense, hold you out as an example of hope. No matter where you are now, there's a better place you can get to. But as you 100%. point out in your, in your book, like that is going to take some commitment, some time, some oh, attention. Real commitment. I mean, I was chronically fatigued when I le when I left my residency. I had just gotten a horrible viral infection. I was only able to work from my bed. I didn't move my body. I wasn't exercising. I was pretty debilitated from a viral infection and from burnout. And so that was me in my, I can't remember what year it was. It was like 2012. So, you know, like 2023. So it's 11 years ago. I was in my lowest point of health and somehow in my gut was like, I need to dedicate my life to health. <laughs> and it was not healthy. I was not healthy, but I was like, I mean, there may be doctors out there listening 
and maybe they're struggling with burnout and they're feeling disenchanted with their lives and their practices and they're wondering what can they do differently and just know that like you don't have to be perfectly well to change your career like i changed my career because i wanted to get well and i wanted to help other people get well and you know now i have this dream life and like frankly it's just it's, it just gets better and better every year but i also in the last few years started realizing that it's just not enough, it's not enough to manage the biological and the material you have to address the psycho spiritual and that's when my practice started to really flourish and my clients were starting to get really healthy was when i realized like oh there's no element of disease that doesn't have an element of disease and you know i i really do believe that we don't fully understand this relationship, but it's the area that I'm most interested in examining is this relationship between the mind, body, and the spirit, and specifically the psycho-spiritual, and how that affects energy flow and resistance to flow and creates contraction in the body, and how healthy relationships give you energy. Like, how wild is it that, you know, I have a call with a friend today, and she's like, man, whenever I talk to you, I just feel so energized. I feel like I have so much more energy. And it's like, well, I don't understand how this works either, but like I'm very invested in figuring this out because I think human connection is such a hugely underappreciated facet of how we can get healthy. It's like change your relationships, you can change your life. Well, you mentioned to you before we started recording that my two favorite chapters in your book was the one on stress, which is towards the last section of the book, and then the very last chapter on connection. So I want to make time to definitely explore those. And yeah. One of like my bias would be the same as yours. I was um, when I was in practice, which dates back quite a few years now. I was very mind body oriented. I loved NLP as an example of a technology and things like that. And I even like in the stress sense, Selye, who's the you know the grandfather of yeah. the physiological stress concept, and did a lot of the pioneering work. His notion after all was said and done is that there was no stress greater than mental emotional stress in humans, right? So yeah, it's it just tends to be you know, in my model, if that's there, it's much more challenging to get it really really things. is. Well, part of that is because like literally your body is like a circuit, right? Like you have these batteries capacitors, you have lines of energy flow. And you know, I only very recently started, really digging into like osteopathy and neural therapies. But I was just like blown away at how there are some doctors in the world now that have figured out this sort of understanding of how the nervous system can be recalibrated after years of stress and trauma. And there's so many amazing trauma therapies coming out nowadays. Like there's never been a better time to heal from traumatic experiences because like it's now become common language in culture to like address things that have pained you in the past. So I'm just a huge believer in like addressing any unresolved traumas, both psychologically, spiritually, and physically. So that's why I'm a huge believer in the pos the potential of psychedelic medicines when used appropriately to help heal some of these psychic scars. But then what about the physical scars, right? So I, I started working with this guy, Dr. Tudor and, and um, Sedona, and he injected in all these different nerve ganglia and all these different connection points in my body, procaine. And he was like, yes, he had basically commented, you know, you've got a lot of tension that you've probably been carrying from different traumas you've experienced. And so we just injected all these different spots in my body and everyone's heard about the stellate ganglia block, but they don't realize that there's all these other ganglia that you can block. And I left that doctor's office like so calm that I felt like I'd done a 10 day meditation retreat 
And it's just been like since then, like I've just been so much calmer. So it's really amazing some of the tools in the toolbox we have to like, it's one thing to like deal with your relationship issues. It's another thing to heal from the relationship pain that you've dealt with, you know? And a lot of people have CPTSD. A lot of people have attachment dysfunction. A lot of people have adverse childhood experiences. And most people don't even know what to do and where to begin healing from these problems. I think it's a common observation, I, I think, from people. I, I know people that have worked strictly detox, as an example, or my oh, own sure. medicine, that people store trauma in our body. And often when that releases, you know, all of a sudden we'll detox things that maybe, yeah. you know, at the same time we were exposed to instead of flowing through, we hung on to them as an example. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, well, one thing I, that I wanted to get to before um, we go too much further is, you know, you mentioned in the book that we're in an, you know, an energy crisis of sorts, and then point out just, you know, some symptoms that may clue someone in that they may be experiencing an energy crisis that would benefit from doing things to really, you know, maximize the potential of their mitochondria. Can you share a few yeah. of those signs and symptoms? So, like, one of the first ones that I, I want to teach everybody is that all of us are going to have times where you have higher energy and lower energy and more stress and less stress. And literally I could show you if you if you Google me and you actually look at my podcasts I've been on, there's some podcasts where I just look gray. Like right now I'm like glowing, but there's podcasts where I am so tired. I look gray and I'm like, wow, those are online forever. But just the amount of light that's exiting your face, just the amount of, of like skin autofluorescence is a great tool in the toolbox to identify if you've got, I mean, I've got ample energy right now because I just did a month of intense biohacking. And so my body has like been glowing since and I've also like madly in love with someone. So there's like two good reasons why my skin is like crazy glowy right now. But um, your skin, like when you meet healthy people, really truly healthy people, they've got to glow. And it doesn't matter what age you are, like anybody can have a glow of health. And then there's also, um, like think about how you look after a good vacation. You come back from a trip that you've been on. You're just rejuvenated, you're, re you're recharged. Um, and then think about what you look like when you have had like the worst week of your life. You know, someone will look at you and be like, hey, what's going on? You don't look great, you know? You look tired. Um, that's physical appearance is something we just don't want, a lot of people don't want to acknowledge. But when I went to China once um, on a layover, I was like astonished. And I'm not sure, this is not meant to be like racist towards Chinese people, but the environment of Beijing is highly toxic. And the air quality was so bad that I had a headache the moment I went on the bus to get to one area of the airport to the other. And I was looking at people's skin and I was like, whoa, everybody's gray. There's no brightness to anyone's skin here. This is a really toxic environment to be living in. Um, so, you know, your environment can make you you know, can really affect your your body's ability to make energy easily. If you live in a toxic environment, you're just not going to have a lot of energy because your body's going to be detoxifying constantly. And that's very energetically taxing. Another one is how do you feel when you wake up in the morning? Do you jump out of bed excited to do work? Or do you, you know, oh man, I'm like so tired. I just can't get myself out of bed. Like big, big, obvious sign, exhausted versus not. Um, you know, I've got a bunch of friends that are new parents and, you know, it can be really exhausting raising a new kid. You know, it's just a thing. It's part of life. It's, you know, because you're you're spending so much of your energy, you know, caring for a child that's dependent on you. Um, another one would be, you know, um, like general well-being. So do you feel resourced? Do you have enough energy to meet your demands or do you feel overwhelmed? 
Do you feel like you're drowning and that there's literally not enough energy to meet your demands? Overwhelm versus feeling resourced and having well-being, very different feelings, right? Like I know what it feels like to feel completely overwhelmed and and just like overextended and burned out. And I know what it feels like to have so much energy that I'm bouncing off the walls. Um, those are some really good tools of ways to think about it. Um, and then, you know, I like to put blood sugar monitors on and aura rings on because I like to use these things as a way to show people what's actually happening when they live their lives. Like what's actually happening when you eat that banana or you eat that muffin, you know, is your body metabolizing these carbs properly? Some people are very carb adapted and they can eat that banana and they're fine. Some people maybe they have taxed their pancreas over many years and they have to be much more careful with the kind of food that they're consuming. So that's one big thing. For women in particular, I think that your menstrual cycle is very much a vital sign. So is your menstrual cycle really challenging you? If so, then there's probably some psychosocial stress that you're not addressing. Like I really think that our menstrual cycles are a real important clue into our emotional regulation. And so many women don't fully understand the relationship between menstruation and just overall day-to-day stress because so many women are working two jobs, raising families. I mean, it's really, it can be really overwhelming. So like watch your menstrual cycle, track your menstrual cycle, look at your heaviness of your cycle, ask yourself, is this healthy? You know, do I need to get, talk to a doctor? You know, do I really need to address anything in my life that could be causing me pain or causing me, you know, excess flow? Um, these are things that we don't get taught, but I've seen time and time again are directly related to unexpressed emotion usually. Wonderful. So I've teased twice that two of my favorite chapters were one dealing with stress. So that was stress drains your batteries. Let's jump into that. I love talking about stress and you did such a brilliant job in that chapter. Well, it's like the thing is, is that we have these batteries for a reason, right? We have this body and these mitochondria for a reason. They're literal mini supercomputers designed to sense and integrate information, just like your brain. They sense and integrate and then they direct energy to where it needs to go. So it's like when I figured that out, I was like, whoa, we have this beautiful distributed neural network throughout every cell. And that's really cool because your cells are thinking for you to figure out how do you keep this body alive? And if we didn't have these innate capacities, we wouldn't stay alive. We wouldn't be able to adapt to these demands in our environment. So mitochondria really are the organelles of adaptation. Um, So for example, if you're a woman and let's say you're dealing with a partner who's got a massive mental health breakdown, um, you might be experiencing some real trouble with your metabolism and you may not know why. Or maybe you're dealing with work stress or maybe one of your children has been sick for months. And the reality is, is that you have this system that's designed to hold on to energy in order to keep you alive. So when I look at people walking around that are obese and overweight, the first thing I think to myself is, wow, like what unexpressed pain have they not been feeling or never, never, maybe they were never able to feel because the body wants to protect itself through food consumption. And we have this very vicious cycle in our environment in America where we watch news that is deeply stressful and then we eat food that we're being fed through commercials that are that's deeply toxic. And so everyone's like wonders why it's so hard to lose weight in a country like America. Well, we're being programmed to be fat. <laughs> you know, like these messages are putting stress signals through the body 
dementing, literally deranging the metabolism, creating the stress, like creating what's called the cell danger response, creating chronic inflammation and illness behavior and depression, leading to people trying to self-medicate with food because it's the most widely abused drug in the country. So our obesity crisis is not like, in my opinion, very complex. It's it's literally mitochondrial dysfunction and it's at scale. And we have energy dysregulation on a macro scale too. So we, li we live in a world where our food production systems are deeply stressful for the environment. So now we have these like, we have the same energetic problem on a bit on a macro scale on a micro scale and it's like when you see these patterns you're like wow how interesting that humanity created so many problems for itself you know and um it's just so interesting to think about that way because like you know it when you when you can get your nervous system calm and relaxed and you can get into a parasympathetic state and you can get your brain to believe that you're able to lose weight weight loss and then you just choose the right foods and deal with emotional eating, which is really usually driven by unresolved pain, suffering, trauma, attachment, dysfunction, uh, relationship issues. If you can deal with all those things, then weight loss does become actually easy. But it does take an understanding of these drivers of of weight gain that are largely, believe it or not, they they some they they can be in your control, but we just don't believe it because we're so conditioned that it's normal to watch the news and be stressed. It's normal to eat fast food and processed food. It's normal to shop at grocery stores that the 80% the of the food is not edible. You know, in my opinion, it's not food. It's just food-like products. So, you know, this is, uh, I don't know. I mean, I kind of like, the reason I kind of went to the metabolism is that I think when people think of stress, they think of like, oh, I'm just feeling really stressed out, but they're not relating it back to what's going on on a metabolic level and on a mitochondrial level. When people think of, of weight loss, they think of exercising more and eating less. But so many people do that and they fail. So why? <laughs> That's the question I had. It was like, why? Why do all these people fail or relapse? You know, and it's like, ooh, it's this stress factor. It's the work environment. It's the relationship problems. It's the unresolved traumas that's actually running the show. And the burnout that so many people have felt, and the PTSD that so many doctors and other people are dealing with right now because of what's going on in, in culture and society. Well, I think you know, when I wrote my book and it's, you know, 10, 12 years ago. Now, one of the frames I had, because my book was on you know, weight loss, shape, was just think in terms of the hypothalamus. It's, yeah. it's the seed of you know what self-regulates all of our survival needs, right? Appetite, thirst, or hydration, um, sex drive. But you could say connection and romance would have a lot yeah. you know, that tie in with that. You know, this stress, um, their body clock. And yep. the way, you know, it always seemed to me, um, and I started working with overweight people in the Navy, just because at the time I was one of the few officers in decent shape. And yep. it was thankless, right? Like, you know, horrible work environment, sleep deprivation, shift work, lousy food, right? It was a no-win situation for many of those people. But the way it's always seemed to me is when any of those basic drives aren't met, the adaptation is generally the same. And it's that it's appetite goes up. You know, we, by one of those core needs not being that the most common adaptation is gaining weight. Yeah. Functionally happens. Yeah. That makes total sense. Yeah. And I mean, it's maybe not um, 100% accurate, but it's really a useful way to look at it. So, yeah. And then I loved how you talked about the generalized unsafety theory of stress. I, oh, yeah. I didn't know anything about that until reading your book. 
Oh, it's funny because like I spoke with Stephen Porges at a dinner directly about this topic and he was just like shaking his head at me. And this guy is like one of my heroes because he's the founder of polyvagal theory. And he actually didn't disagree with me. What he said was basically that the theory, the generalized unsafety theory of stress says that our brains feel stressed at baseline unless they're told to feel safe. And the the reality is, is that there's unsafe contexts. So if you're living in Israel, that's a very unsafe context right now. Um, living in a forest fire is unsafe context, right? Live, even just living in a city where you don't know your neighbors can feel unsafe. And then there's, um, and then like even just driving at night where there's no visibility because of fog, that's unsafe context. And then there's unsafe bodies, which if you live in a body that is like, let's say you're homeless on the street and you can't clean yourself regularly, you literally, your body is at risk for infection. Like that's an unsafe experience to like not be able to protect your body through cleaning yourself. Um, obesity is an unsafe body because your body is carrying a lot of extra inflammation and you're also having to carry a weight around. Like imagine having to carry an extra 50 pounds bag around all day long. That's what some people are dealing with with obesity, sometimes even much more. So that sends a stress signal that you're like, you've got a lot of stress that you shouldn't have to carry. And then there's um, unsafe um, unsafe bodies, unsafe contexts, and um, the arguably is like unsafe. Um, I, there's another one. I, can, I can't remember the name, but it's basically unsafe so, people. Social networks is what you- Social networks, yeah. So like lack the social networks versus um, like not having a social network, or I would even argue like having toxic social networks, right? Like those are very unsafe contexts, unsafe environments for socially versus a safe context. So Stephen's con comment was that our brains are actually wired for safety if sent signals that things are unsafe because our initial environment was supposed to be in tribes. We're supposed to live in communities. We're supposed to feel safe at baseline. That's his theory is that it's that all of our environments have changed so much since prehistory that we now live in generally an unsafe environment because we're not supposed to be so isolated. Like we would be feeling safe all the time if it wasn't for the fact that we now live isolated and alone. And um, so his his that's that was what his comment was was that it's it's not that we, he he believes that the alarm signal wouldn't have been on all the time due to feeling unsafe in more tribal and more communal times. And the other big area you point out is, um, you know, generally an opportunity for all of us to heal is adverse childhood events. Yeah. So adverse childhood experiences aren't always traumatic um, and lead leading to disease because they have new research that just came out on um, that even just having one caregiver that was maybe a family friend or a family member even if you had these adverse childhood experiences, if you had protective experiences concurrently, it can actually buffer against the adverse childhood experiences. So, um, so now they're actually like, there's like ways of evaluating if you had protective experiences as a child to mitigate the adverse effects. And the funny thing about being an entrepreneur is I meet a lot of other entrepreneurs and I meet a lot of investors and it's it's really uncanny how many investors have commented that some of their best entrepreneurs are literally people who've had some of the hardest lives and the biggest traumas. So sometimes it could actually turn, it can actually be a net positive because you can create all sorts of things from 
having a higher pain set point, <laughs> you know? Like I um, dated an entrepreneur once who had enormously high pain set point and he was a Jewish immigrant and um, experienced a lot of racism and, you know, was a refugee from another country growing up. So it's, we, we don't need to look at challenges in life as always bad. What we need to look at is like life is challenging. Of course, we would like to create the conditions where people don't have so many challenges, but over coddling children can also be problematic too. You know, not having enough, not having challenges at all can sometimes make you less strong. So that's something worth considering as well is like you want a balance and you most importantly want loving relationships. I think that balance is super important. I, I was just reading a blog article yesterday um, by a woman. I think her book is The Free Range Child. Maybe it was what it was called. I didn't know anything about it, but it was, the, you know, the premise was that um, yeah, like children can sometimes thrive, be given a little bit more opportunity to do things without having a hovering parent and building that confidence yeah. that, you know, that they've got this. So, I mean, my parents raised me with a lot of freedom and a lot of protection. And so I had a very, I mean, I think my parents are geniuses at parenting, but basically like all of my sisters are super happy and healthy people with like amazing families and lots of love and I think my parents did a really good job um, creating the conditions where we had a lot of freedom to play. And I worry a lot about this new generation because the new threats are much weirder. You know, like being threatened that you might have a shooter in the school is like a lot more resting nervous system tension than um, what I dealt with, which was occasional stress, right? Worrying about how the environment is being affected by climate change is something that causes a lot of a lot of existential and by anxiety in a lot of young kids. And that's new, too. And so, like, I grew up in the 90s when everything was like, pretty golden. <laughs> and um, so I do worry about kids these days because it seems like these anxiety and depression levels are rising. And I think it could be a combination. And I know it's my personal belief is that it's a combination of um a bunch of different factors, but the big ones being parents working a lot more and less, having a lot less time with their kids. Um, pretty rampant gut dysfunction from a very chemically toxic food environment and um, just way too much packaged processed foods. Like 60% of a child's diet is processed foods or fast food these days, which is just poisonous. And then on top of that, there's the... Um, just the amount of lack of social connection due to social media. So many kids are socially connecting only through their phones, which is just disconnected. You know, it's just not the same thing as having human connection, human touch. Um, and then um, the existential reasons, you know, that are that are causing kids to worry. The fear that college may not be worth the money anymore. The fear of competitive work environments. The fear of AI taking jobs. There's a lot of things that kids have to worry about that I didn't have to worry about as a kid. So... I do think that what's really exciting and interesting is like this huge drive in homeschooling. And so there's just like this massive shift in like parents wanting to homeschool their kids and creating these learning pods and chartering schools. And it's really fascinating to see how American population is adapting to all this change. And so it's I'm personally deeply optimistic for America because I have to be. Otherwise, I wouldn't stay here. But um we got a lot of things to overcome. We got a lot of problems to solve, which, you know, to me, um, I've always resonated with the the word um, crisis 
be is because in Jap in Chinese it means danger and opportunity. And so I'm I'm of the sort of the 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 sort of like um I'm sort of of the genetic stock that believes that any sort of crisis is a major opportunity and um that's always sort of been my I mean I was very in weird way fortunate or unfortunate to have experienced some familial um challenges early in life that woke me up to the reality of human suffering and created a very I would say a pretty resilient young woman at a very young age um so I'm I'm I definitely want people to understand when they read the book that yes of course stress drains your batteries but if you create a lifestyle and you create human connections around you that create resilience and create ample energy, you can handle a lot more than you realize. One of the things I just want to point out, like a frame for the audience. So when I listen to you speak, I the, one of the ways I interpret things, there's what's happening. And then there's our stories, the stories we tell ourselves about what is happening. So you yeah. pointed out a lot of things that are happening, but then a really overwhelmingly positive story that you tell yourself about yeah. those things. Yeah. Not often can be the the tipping point between those, you know, causing our health to collapse and us thriving in more challenging circumstances. So I'm huge. I used to always feel like part of my job as a doctor was to listen to the stories my patients were telling me. And if nothing else, help them tell a better story. Yeah, exactly. And I think that what we, we do have a lot of control over one thing and that's our thoughts. So it's more important than ever to practice mental hygiene. <laughs> and so one of my favorite mental hygiene tools is whenever I get a negative thought, because like one of my exes once said to me, you know, you have a lot of automatic negative thoughts. And he'd done a fair amount of therapy. And I was like, what do you mean automatic negative thoughts? And he's like, well, you just like go to the negative way, way more often than the positive. And I was like, oh. And then I took a course on meditation through this guy, um, Jeffrey Martin, who's got this thing called the finders course and also 45 days to awakening. And he taught at Stanford with me. And he taught me that you can just press the button, cancel, cancel. And so you wake up in the morning and you got a scary thought in your head and you just press cancel, cancel. And immediately I replace that negative thought with a positive thought. And there are all sorts of ways to learn to reformat your you know, subconscious. Um, hypnosis, um, you know, psychedelic medicine can do so, but I would prefer people start with meditation and visualization exercises are really powerful too, tools. So you have a lot within you to change your mind, including like things like breath work too. Yeah. You point breath work out a couple of different techniques, including, you know, one of our favorite box breathing, what I call pace breathing. I, you called it, uh, I think rhythmic breathing. Yeah. Um, you know, the Andrew Wild technique. Um, are there things besides, you know, what meditation, breathing that you just say, oh, your audience, do these couple simple things when you're stressed out. Um, I mean, the most important thing is you find connection to someone that you trust. And, you know, really importantly is feel like, like if you don't have a trusted network around yourself, start building one. Like I'm really, 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 really over. I'm the kind of person who just overemphasizes connections and friends. But it's something that I think is so valuable and so overlooked. So building this trusted network of people to talk to. And then the second thing would be um, massage. Like I love massage. Like I, I started really investing in massage years ago because I was like, touch hunger is real. And a lot of people just don't have enough human touch. And that is a huge, it's a phenomenal way to reduce stress. Also, very simply is nature exposure. It's free. Go to a park. Go to a park with your family or your friends. Have a picnic. 
be in nature, be in trees, you know, be surrounded by trees. And nature's free. If you can find a, a like a, there's like parks everywhere. Just like go find a go, go find some green space. Take your shoes off. Take your socks off. Ground your feet. You know, breathe the fresh air. Like it's so overlooked. Well, thanks. Well, connections come up many times. So let's get into that last chapter. My favorite connection is the key to longevity. And I'm just going to start with a quote because I I adored this. And it's oh. even if you ignore everything else I have told you in this book. If you work on this one single biohack, learning to love yourself, everything in your life will get easier. So yeah, can we get into connection and that? And I just got chills because like, I think about how hard of a journey it was for me to find self-love and how much I was driven by this masochistic achieve- achiever attitude <laughs> for so long. And I'm so grateful for just being able to have the privilege to commit my life to personal development and growth and healing because you know I've everything that I have written about in this book I've done myself and um and worked with clients on but I really didn't fully understand self-love until I like decided that it was something I needed to work on and it was really post-pandemic I was spending a lot of time with my parents and I realized that like I didn't fully understand why I had some insecure attachment patterns and it was like a combination of things that had happened to me in my life post my parents parenting me and then some of my parental interactions. And I, I, I really sat with my, my mom in particular and asked her about her upbringing in her life and realized that I had this like, whoa, there's like such intergenerational patterns that were passed down. And I was able to really try to heal those. Um, and then I was able to really work on internal family systems with myself and get in touch with all these different parts of me over the course of like a couple of years. And I did some really great somatic therapies with a great somatic therapist. Um, and I was just able to really get into my body in a way that I had, hadn't felt in a long time. Uh, just really being able to fully feel my feelings and not have to like suppress them or avoid them and just be present for them. Still like a big piece of self-love is like not running from your feelings, not avoiding how you feel like not trying to suppress or dissociate but just being with you like a parent would be with a child and that that combination of working on attachment internal internal family systems somatic therapies led to this like waking up one day and being like oh my god like i really like who you are <laughs> like you're great <laughs> and you know and it's like wow like you don't need to change anything you're awesome like you're you're just you you're good and that was a really big milestone in my life of just being like oh wow and i still get these like tinges of like okay i need to change that and i need and okay i'm in trouble or i'm i did i did something wrong um but it's a lot less so and it's a lot less that that internal voice i don't am i hearing that internal voice that's like criticizing my body or criticizing my appearance as much still there sometimes but it's not nearly as loud as it used to be when i think it's natural there'll be a little bit of ebb and flow but if we can change or shift our baseline to one where our norm is that you know love acceptance of ourselves and it doesn't mean we're perfect how we are like there's the journey's always you know moving but it's just such a much better story to yeah. tell ourselves and i think it sets us up for success everywhere relationships work you know, financially, you know, in your case, practicing, working with clients. So yeah, so lovely. 
Yeah, thanks. Sure. Well, um, I just want to you know encourage the audience, if you've enjoyed listening to Dr. Molly today or in the past on our podcast, please check out her new book, The Spark Factor. And Molly, what's the best way for our listeners to follow you? Well, before we go, I want to plug a couple things. So first sure. is, you know, the very last chapter of the book is all about human connection. And my company, Adamo Bioscience, is creating a bunch of products and services around the science of love. And so we've been pioneering the first sex therapy since Masters and Johnson. So we're running our first program in January and people are interested in signing up. We'd love to have you. Um, if you are dealing with sexual dysfunction, dealing with um, wanting to optimize your sex life, wanting to optimize your relationship with your partner. Um, you know, it's it's something that has changed my life, working with these two remarkable sex therapists, Aaron Michael and Saida Desole, who I think are like the next Masters and Johnson. So I want people to know that they can go to andamo.com um, and follow me on Instagram at drmolly.co. My website is www.drmolly.co and my book is The Spark Factor and you can get it on Amazon or my website. Well, thanks. Thanks again for all your support over the years, for all you're doing to pioneer biohacking, especially for women, and for joining us today on Collective Insights. Thank you. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.